Hey, podcast subscribers, we just received great news. I'm being honored by the Women's Media Center. Yours truly, Laura Flanders, to receive their 2019 Pat Mitchell Lifetime Achievement Award. You'll find more information at our Patreon site if you'd like to join us at the awards ceremony Tuesday, October 22nd. Not a Patreon member yet? Help us reach our goal of 100 new members by the end of this year. We're about halfway there. Patrons get lots of extras, including the first release of the show, my research materials, and a lot of web exclusives, both video and audio. Go to patreon.com forward slash the LF show, patreon.com forward slash the LF show. And thanks. I couldn't do this show without your support. Now, here it is, this week's show. Hi, I'm Laura Flanders, and this is The Laura Flanders Show, the TV and radio program that seeks to raise radical spirits by interviewing forward-thinking people with real-life models of shifting power from the few to the many in the worlds of arts, entrepreneurship, and governance. This week, the People's Republic of China celebrates its 70th anniversary as months of pro-democracy demonstrations continue in Hong Kong. The situation in Hong Kong is, is a climate of terror. You look at a lot of the frontline protesters who go and have written wills and carried the, their, their last testament with them into battle with the police. You have to think about what is making them do this. It's kind of fighting for something that they believe to be so intrinsic to who they are, they will not give it up for anything. The historic demonstrations began back in June as a response to the proposal of an extradition agreement with mainland China. Concerned that that bill would further erode the civil liberties they enjoy under the so-called one country, two systems principle, many Hong Kongers took to the streets. All these months later, the city's chief executive, Carrie Lam, has withdrawn the bill, but the demonstrations continue, and the issues have become a lot bigger, getting to the heart of the meaning of democracy and Chinese imperialism. Still coming up on the Laura Flanders Show, the place where the people who say it can't be done take a back seat to the people who are doing it. Welcome. What can we in the U.S. learn from what's going on in Hong Kong? Here to discuss that, we have Joy Ming King, a member of the Laosan Collective, which is a project of young Hong Kongers inside and outside of Hong Kong, and Michelle Chen, a labor historian right here at the City University of New York, a contributing writer at In These Times and the Nation, and the co-host of Belabored, a must-listen-to podcast from Dissent Magazine. So let's start with you, um, Joy Ming. What is Hong Kong to you? Why do you care? And how do you see the story here in the diaspora? Hong Kong is home for me. I was born and raised in Hong Kong. Spent most of my life there until I came to the U.S. Uh, now to be in university. I think that Hong Kong's struggle right now has a lot of relevance for not just the diaspora, but for uh, the rest of the world in the 21st century. How come? I think that the struggle of Hong Kongers deals with the logic of capital, of borders, state, police, immigration, identity, all of these things that we take for granted are being challenged. And the ways that we are challenging these conceptions have relevance for the rest of the world. Well, you laid out a great list there. I mean, we should reiterate point by point, but let's just pick one. You said it has to do with the logic of capital. What do, what do you mean? So Hong Kong has historically served as this entrepot, a port city uh, that serves as an interface between China and the West. And so historically, it has been this conduit for finance capital, trade capital 
to uh, enter China and, and get out of China. And so to this day, there still remains a very tight collusion between the business elite and the government. And that is a legacy of the British colonial period. And a result of that, one consequence is that the real estate and the finance industries have a very strong grip on our economy, driving land prices up so that many people actually are forced to live in caged homes, mm. which are uh, very tiny spaces to just fit your bed and your body and, and you pay rent for that space while you have luxury apartments for you know the super rich. So Hong Kong is one of the most unequal societies in the world and it is directly a consequence of this historical uh, relationship of capital and the state. And this is something that Hong Kongers have in mind very strongly as they continue the struggle against the extradition bill and also for greater self-determination. And just to sort of put a pin on it, this did start with a discussion of a proposal around extradition of people accused of crimes, extraditing people from Hong Kong to mainland China for trials, for prosecution, for trying. How has it evolved? How has it kind of emerged that this struggle has gotten so much bigger? So from the very beginning, everyone knew that this extradition bill proposal was not just about fixing some legal loophole, not just a small technicality. It was very clear to everyone in Hong Kong that this was the latest step in China's larger project that it has been doing for the past 20 years since the handover to assert more and more control over Hong Kong, to reduce Hong Kong's autonomy that China had promised to Hong Kong, and to quash any efforts at self-determination and democracy. Uh, the reason why people understood this was because the extradition bill would threaten anyone, uh, regardless of your residency status or citizenship, if you are wanted by China for a certain number of crimes in Chinese law, then uh, the Hong Kong government, under this uh, revision to the bill, would be allowed to extradite you to China to stand trial, where the uh, human rights are routinely trampled upon and the rule of law is not guaranteed. And so the way that this connects to the logics of capital and state that I was just talking about is that people know that democracy by itself doesn't pay the bills. Rather, it's an instrument to fix our problems. And people see rising inequality, rising real estate market prices, environmental degradation, very poor labor rights, and they see democracy as an instrument to rectify a lot of these structural inequalities and problems that they face on a daily basis. Mm, I mean, it's so fascinating listening to you talk about this. I mean, this is not the way most people are getting this news. I mean, hearing it from you, I'm hearing Hong Kong as a kind of liminal space that we could point to many, having to do with the relationship of, of capital and money and people, but also with respect to democracy, human rights. It's about a place in transition. Michelle, you wrote a piece for In These Times about how this also points to a new kind of internationalism. Were you referring to the sort of global response or the struggle? Yeah, itself? well, I think that um, because uh, Hong Kong is a liminal space, but it's also sort of embedded in the constellations of global capital in that part of the world, but it's also intimately connected to the mainland, right? Um, and China is sort of the ultimate global news story of the 21st century, right? Hong Kong sort of is, is at a crossroads and is sort of at the pivot point between a bunch of different issues, but just sort of writing from the perspective of a diaspora observer. So, um, you know, I haven't lived in China a number of years, but based on the time that I've spent there, I mean, I think that it's just interesting to see how uh, the relationship between the mainland and Hong Kong and between sort of the ordinary citizens who are living in, on both sides of that divide, they're not really allowed to interface with each other sort of in, in any sort of 
you know, legally sanctioned public way, uh -huh. but there are sort of um, percolations of dissent that are happening on both sides and a lot of interrogation, I think, that needs to happen. Of, how, of the how positions in both places. I mean, it's been widely reported that there are sort of tensions between sort of what the ordinary public of, of China thinks of the Hong Kong protesters, and you occasionally see you know these like fisticuffs breaking out like you know in Hong Kong between mainlanders and Hong Kongers, and there is sort of this um, like a seam of tension that I think the protests have kind of touched upon um, that has been longstanding between sort of the native Hong Kongers and the mainlanders, and there are sort of strands of nativism that I think are coming out of the protests. Um, um, and so I think that's one of the sort of the splinters of mm -hmm. the protest that I think is worth keeping an eye on because ultimately I think many of the Hong Kong protesters would say that um, on an abstract level, on a philosophical level at least, they are protesting for the mainlanders as well because they're advocating for universal rights, right? And they would like to see some of the, the aspects of democracy that they are struggling to preserve or realize in Hong Kong are things that they'd ultimately like to see in mainland China, which is, of course, precisely what alarms mm. Beijing so much, right? So um, I think it, it will be interesting to see how uh, the mainland reacts. Um, there have been reports of mainlanders actually sneaking across the border and protesting alongside the Hong Kong protesters, right? So I think that's sort of the bigger story in the backdrop. Um, so and I think that, Hong Kong is symbolic of a lot of those struggles. So does that connect, I mean, the protests really took off in a sense around the anniversary of the Tiananmen Square massacres where people, some people said this was sort of the Hong Kongers effort to kind of continue perpetuate dissent, the struggle for dissent that people in mainland China can't do. In relation to what you just said, do you see connections and have connections come out between other people fighting for human rights in China and against China's Chinese colonialism? I'm thinking of the Uyghurs and the Tibetans. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I think I think in, in, in the U.S. there have been some sort of people drawing those connections, I think, and activists in the diaspora. Um, but I think that's still sort of operating at a 30,000 feet level. And I actually don't, I don't know how effective it would be to necessarily try to combine those struggles, um, because I think that each of these struggles for self-determination and sovereignty need to be taken on their own terms. Um, and I think that there's nothing that the Beijing government would like more than to see sort of all these sort of, um, like, you know, commentators from the West kind of lumping together every single kind of dissident in China and like, you know, trying to act like it's some sort of force that's about to instigate regime change or something like that. Because that's ultimately, I mean, that's the type of paranoia that I think the Beijing government would like to stoke. But I think that you actually have to sort of take the protesters on face value. And I think that they're still working through a lot of the issues and doing a lot of questioning of what their own movement actually means. It is famously a leaderless movement, right? And so what does that mean in the 21st century? So what about the new internationalism part? What about that question of, of what does allyship look like and solidarity look like? What are we learning? Are we seeing any new models? I mean, you're organizing in some interesting ways. The, the Hong Kong diaspora that's organizing around the protests are using some interesting tactics. The Hong Kong diaspora, we, we have a, a, a unique position in this division of labor, I guess, of this movement, being able to uh, interface with not just the West, but also oppressed peoples around the world who are struggling very similarly against similar problems. For instance, the recent movement in Puerto Rico that was ultimately successful, when that was happening, people in Puerto Rico were looking to Hong Kong, and the Hong Kong people uh, in their struggles were looking to the people in Puerto Rico. And even now, there's a, a kind of correspondence between these two peoples because the struggle is the same. They're both kind of marginal, peripheral places that have been subjected to a sort of colonial rule by a core uh, um, hegemonic power. Being in the diaspora means that we can have the time and space 
and the resources to look outwards to what is not usually available back home in Hong Kong to build these connections with oppressed peoples around the world. And yeah, to develop what Michelle was talking about, a more internationalist uh, way of thinking about this struggle, not just as a nativist uh, a struggle for um, autonomy or, or human rights, but rather connecting it to larger um, mm. problems around the world. It is complicated, though, once we get into the U.S. scene, and particularly in the U.S. left, I think this is a very tricky, complicated question that, as, as you pointed out in your writing, Michelle, left and right are made very nervous by dialogues and discussions around China. Um, Josh Wong, the, the, the activist from Hong Kong, was here recently. We have a clip of what he said at his press conference. The movement is far from over because it has long moved beyond one bill or one person. Our most important demand is genuine structural change in Hong Kong, which means free election. Our government's lack of representation lies at the heart of the matter. There's also a federal bill that is called the Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act that some people are lobbying for. But then there's a whole lot of other people who are like, Trump is already down enough on China. Yeah. We are already seeing a rise of kind of yellow peril retro racism. Where do we place ourselves as progressive people in relation to all this? I think it's interesting to see sort of forces lobbying Washington and Hong Kong. I'm sure that part of their motivation is genuinely that they want to have a voice and they think they see the U.S. as um, at least giving them a platform, right? But I think that that kind of sort of gesturism is not necessarily the most helpful in terms of the grassroots movement, but I think that will sort of operate on its own axis regardless. So I'm not actually sure how much the U.S. intervention could do. Then again, I do think it's important that at least there is a space for discussing that. And there's a public discourse that is going on around the world around what's going on in Hong Kong. I don't think that Marco Rubio like, like proposing a bill to promote human rights in Hong Kong is necessarily the way to go since he had so much success putting democracy so in Cuba. Yeah, yeah. So I think it is a bit of a strange bedfellow situation, but I think that speaks to a broader kind of um, conundrum for the movement as a whole. As uh, Wilfred Chan, who wrote another one of the articles that we're talking about, he cited, um, you know, sort of trapped between two hegemonic powers, right? And I think, in a sense, Hong Kong is a little bit like Puerto Rico in that it's been twice colonized, right? First by actual colonization, and then second by sort of a, like a hegemonic neoliberal order that is being imposed on it, right? And I think um, Hong Kong is similarly kind of like a sort of a vassal state in that sense. But I think that what Hong Kong has that maybe other sort of neoliberal bastions like Singapore or like the Gulf states, right, don't have is a vibrant youth movement that is really frustrated and really frightened right now. And I think there's a kind of an existential moment that's happening there. I think it's really hard for people in Washington to really understand what's going on there. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I wouldn't discount any support from Congress that these protesters get, but ultimately I don't think that's where the locus of this fight is going to be. This is The Laura Flanders Show. I'm Laura. My guests are Michelle Chen, a labor historian at the City University of New York, as well as a contributing writer at In These Times in the Nation. She's co-host of the Belabored podcast from Dissent Magazine. With Michelle is student organizer Joy Min King. He's a member of the Lausen Collective, a project of young Hong Kongers inside and outside Hong Kong. If you're listening to us as a podcast subscriber, yay! And if you have a favorite community radio station you also think should be carrying the show, yay! Send an email to them and to us. We'll help connect. Our email is podcastlfshow at gmail.com. The show is available via the Pacifica Radio Network and Public Radio Exchange. And a big thanks to the stations that are already carrying the show. 
and everyone that's tuning in via radio. We love you. Be sure to support your local station by making a donation and become a member. Do it. By doing so, you are also casting a vote of support for all we do here on this program, as well as for all independent and community-led media. So, did I say, do it. Next, I ask Joy Min King, how does U.S. politics provide a context that's useful or not for young Hong Kongers here and there? Meanwhile, here's Chaos by DJ Sun from his album Kin Shi, inspired by a Chinese ancestral quest courtesy of Solar Productions. How do you navigate your position here in the U.S.? I mean, how does the, how does U.S. politics provide a context that's useful or not? Yeah, in terms of the Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act, my personal feelings about it are similar to Michelle's in terms of an anxiety about placing Hong Kong once again uh, in the hands of a foreign superpower, whether it's the U.S., Britain, or China. What Hong Kong people are fighting for is self-determination. What that really means is for Hong Kongers to be able to secure their own future, to determine their own future without pleading to one superpower to fight another. And more precisely, there are provisions in that bill that are actually could be dangerous uh, to Hong Kong's future. For instance, the uh, provision to have a database of a list of protesters so that when they apply to come to the U.S., they won't be discriminated against on the basis of perhaps a criminal record for protesting. But we've seen the track record of the United States in the past is that it can collect data about people who they initially try to protect. But a couple of administrations later, perhaps a crisis would cause that database to become a threat to the people that they were initially trying to protect. So once again, this brings back to the question of how do we situate Hong Kong as an entity within itself, as a people who can decide their own future. And I think for us in the diaspora, we have an opportunity to think about the histories of other places like the US, like other um, colonial peoples, and see how have these forces operated historically mm -hmm. and how can we be cautious about engaging with these powers today? Well, you at the Laosan Collective have done an amazing thing. You've kind of taken a look at all of that and said, not that, thank you very much. But you've come up with your own vision. Talk about that a little bit, of, of how actually there could be a whole different future for Hong Kong. As I was saying earlier, I think that Hong Kong's position can be taken as a point from which critique can be mounted for the rest of the world about the problems that the rest of the world faces in the 21st century. So for instance, with inequality and, and, and the, the relationship between capitalism and democracy, if I can point to a quote that 
was said by the previous chief executive of Hong Kong in 2014 during the last uprising called the Umbrella Movement. People were asking him about the question of universal suffrage, and he said, well, if you give the people of Hong Kong universal suffrage, then you would be talking to the bottom half of the income distribution of people earning below $1,500 a month, and then you would have that kind of politics and that kind of policies insinuating that, you know, a more welfare provisions for these people, the re redistributive policies. And so you can see that the ruling elite are thinking of universal suffrage not just in terms of the liberal concepts of freedom and democracy, but really as an instrument to keep the economic order, the socio-economic inequalities a certain way from which they benefit. Hmm, maybe we so, do that here too. Right. Absolutely. And so, I was, but I was going to say, I mean, in terms of just the class analysis of the mm. protests so far in this movement, I think that's still a work in progress. I mean, I don't think that if you speak to you know protesters on the street right now, they necessarily have that fully formed concept of like the role of capital. I mean, if anything, you have seen sort of a curious marriage between the interests of the business elite who also don't like the extradition bill and the grassroots protesters as well. And I think that cooperative stance for now, I mean, is opportunistic, but I don't think it can ultimately hold. So what my friends and I are trying to imagine and suggest is that uh, the future for Hong Kong should be something entirely new. And in fact, what Hong Kong protesters are fighting for and, and, and demanding is not something that we can retrieve from our, our history. It's something that has to be established anew by you know, putting people over profits, by implementing democracy in a comprehensive way that means um, democratizing, for instance, how we manage our police force, how we manage our economy, and to reimagine identity not in terms of state or even language or culture, but something that is built through struggle against uh, common oppression. Mm. And that kind of internationalist spirit uh, of, of connecting with the histories of struggles that are still unfolding right now all around the world, that's something that is very important to us. Mm. So what models of, of allyship, of solidarity, do you think emerge from this? Or would you like to see emerge from this? First you and then Michelle. I personally would like to see more collaboration between the people of Puerto Rico, for instance, and mm. Hong Kong, or the people of other marginalized uh, spaces geographically, and to learn from each other because I think there are a lot of common experiences and resources to be shared. And in fact, this work is, is already happening. And um, to push back a little bit on what you said earlier, Michelle, I agree that this is not a, a mainstream narrative, a mainstream perspective of the protests. but. This, this is a radical juncture. Things are being challenged in every possible way. This is a general uprising against an established order of society, and people are exploring radical possibilities and radical political consciousness for the first time. Mm -hmm. And so nobody really knows where this is going to go, but there's an opening for something new. Yeah, I definitely second that, and I don't mean to be overly <laughs> cynical. Um, but I, um, I actually w was interviewing um, some, some of the um, labor organizers who have been participating in the protest, and they brought a sort of a, a very interesting analysis to it. And this is right after the general strike, which of course, you know, a strike is fundamentally a, a labor action, but in this case, it was sort of a, a mass uprising. It was sort of a, a manifestation of a mass uprising. And That's um, people took over the airports. And right, the right. And, um, and I, I, you know, I asked people, is this, um, is this a labor action? And they were basically like, no, it's not really a labor action, but there's the germ here for like an actual moment in which we can build a real labor movement because the consciousness of the inequality is there. It's just that um, there's not 
not necessarily the ideological groundwork that's been laid to mm -hmm. sort of frame and sort of um, uh, create kind of a launch pad for, for a movement that is really dynamic and, and progressive and is based in solidarity on the left. And I think that that's sort of like the radical juncture that we're talking about. I think that there are I mean, uh, beyond sort of the sort of island solidarity, I was going to say, I mean, um, there are activists in Taiwan and there are um, you know, labor uprisings going on all around Asia right now. And, and I think that Asia is really interesting. On the one hand, it's held up as an example of some of neoliberalism's, mm -hmm. you know, more successful stories, I think, in some ways. But you also see these currents of um, unrest that are sort of rising to the surface. And I think that it would be really important for the, the West to kind of, you know, get out of its own sort of safe space and, and sort of look to the other side of the world to see um, what we can learn from yeah. them. I mean, we do talk about, you know, the flow of money needs to be accompanied by a flow of people. And a flow of people needs to be accompanied also with a flow of thinking. We need to think of things and the struggles in our lives as international struggles. It's not easy, though. I mean, particularly with respect to China, and just to ask some, some concrete ideas, a lot of people who want to be in solidarity with people in Hong Kong or Tibetans or the Uyghurs don't have the money to be able to pay top dollar for the clothing that they're now paying bottom dollar for made in China. How do we actually do solidarity when so much of our lives are wrapped up in exploitation? Um, elsewhere. Any any thoughts? I know there was a labor conference in Asia held by yeah. Labor Notes. Right. I mean, I think uh, Labor Notes just held its first uh, conference in Asia, which I thought was really interesting to approach solidarity from uh, the standpoint of labor organizing as opposed to looking at consumer activism, which yeah. is where a lot of uh, a lot of our sort of <laughs> quasi-activism is in So maybe that's the answer. Switch to years. labor. Yeah. Um, but I also think that it involves like a certain kind of humility. And in a way, I mean, it sort of involves us sort of changing our mindset in the sense that we maybe it's better just to sort of step back and let things unfold. I mean, I think it's also important to be able to trust the activists to be able to advocate on their own terms in their own way. I mean, um, part of the, the power of neoliberalism in Asia is that um, countries like China have been able to seize on it and create sort of an a seeming alternative to Western hegemony that is not quite an alternative to hegemonic capitalism, but sort of rebrands it. Mm -hmm. And I think that if there were a leftist, a genuine sort of broad-based leftist mobilization across Asia, I could form sort of a, not necessarily a, a complete alternative, yep. but sort of an, 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 a parallel movement that could be sort of um, a, a reflective image of, of what has gone on in the West over the past hundred years, but also bring it to the next level. I think that's something that we could learn from. If we had somebody here from Hong Kong right now, they would be saying, it's not true the Chinese have been that restrained with respect to the, their response to the protests. There are people in prison. There are people injured. There are people who've been, I think there's people who've lost their lives. Talk a bit about the condition of life of the people that you're following. We've got about a minute It's to ground uh, us in reality at the end here. The, the situation in Hong Kong is it's a climate of terror. People are afraid to walk out on the streets. People have no trust in the government. There is just escalating public outrage to unprecedented levels against police brutality. People are really angry and, and people are willing to stake their lives for this. I mean, you look at a lot of the frontline protesters who go and have written wills and carried the, their, their last testament with them into battle with the police. And these are young people who have a whole future ahead of them, but you have to think about what is making them do this. And it's, it's desperation, it's outrage, and yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's kind of fighting for something that they believe to be so intrinsic to who they are, they will not give it up for anything. Well, I want to thank you both for coming in. This was a great conversation, and I hope that we've helped people to feel more connected to the struggle in Hong Kong. 
That was student organizer Joy Ming King, a member of the Laothan Collective, a project of young Hong Kongers in and outside the island. And Michelle Chen, labor historian at the City University of New York and co-host of the Belabored podcast. For more information on them and all of my guests, go to patreon.com forward slash the LF show. That is P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash the LF show. That's also where you'll find additional research materials and links to related episodes in our archives. While you're there, please consider becoming a member for $3, $5 or $12 a month. We may be independent from corporations and government, but we are dependent on you to remain ad-free. And if you have yet to subscribe to this podcast, do it at your favorite podcast app like Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. Subscribers receive extra content like my commentaries. I call them the F-words. The latest, while all cameras are on Trump and impeachment, Americans are missing a bigger picture, the global corruption rebellion that they don't even know they're part of yet. This show is produced by yours truly, Laura Flanders, with Matt Colicello, Jeannie Hopper, Tommy Tahifi, Natasha Gaspar, Nat Needham, and Sabine Blazin. The Laura Flanders Show is made possible from the Novo, Ford, Tomcat, Cloud Mountain, and Fonda Foundations, as well as by listeners like you. So thank you. Stay kind, stay curious. Until the next time, I'm Laura. Laura.